chapter 6. I have uh, been reminded throughout the week the wonderful things God has shown us and the challenges we actually had to go through it together. Uh, some of you had to maybe adjust a little bit your thinking. Well, I've always been taught a certain way. I have to tell you what, one thing. Uh, my wife and I, we grew up in a religious environment where we have been taught since birth, probably, to think a certain way. And then we had to let almost everything go. And the more we let go, the more God reveals himself through his word to us in a new and awesome way. And I have, a, I have a duty as a pastor to never hold back, but to give you everything what I know you need, or I think I know you need. And I tell you why I feel like you need it, because I needed it myself. And the same power that God is using through his word to transform my life is the same power he's using to transform your life. Now, the challenge is when we go into topics, as you know, we are working on the power of words. And Wednesday night, I do kind of either the sequel of it or the accommodation of it, what we learn, so it kind of fits together and gives you deeper insight. But when you do a study like this and you take words which we have been so familiar with and we have used them constantly in our vocabulary, yet never really taken time to sit down and analyze what the Bible actually has to say about it. And then I come up here and I say, well, let me share with you. Actually, it's not exactly what you meant, what it is. Normally, some of your shutters go down. So this morning, I'm going to challenge you. Don't let your shutters go down because you missed the whole point. You've got to listen all the way through it. So keep it open, keep your eyes open. We have an enemy who wants nothing more than to misunderstand the word of God. Because our enemy knows if we don't get the word of God right, we are open season to the spiritual powers to deceive. And in the time we're living in, there is so much floating in all different areas where we have access to and we have to kind of sort it out. But how can we sort things out if we don't know where our anchor is really anchored? So that is the key for me to go with you constantly back to Genesis. Because I always say, for many, many years, if you don't get Genesis, the rest of the Bible does not make sense to you. That doesn't mean that you cannot accept the Lord Jesus. That doesn't mean that you're not getting a simple salvation message. You can respond. What I'm saying is you can be saved without knowing anything but that Jesus saved you. That's what Jesus meant with a child. You have to have, be like a child. You don't have any knowledge. But after you have gotten to know him, would you like to get to know him a little better? Even the Apostle Paul, such a studied Hebrew scholar, said, Oh, that I might get to know the power of his resurrection. He doesn't say, I don't believe in the resurrection. He doesn't say, I need the power of his resurrection, that I may get to know it. Do I get to know the one who rose from the dead a little bit better? And obviously, there's no better place than the Bible. So this morning, I'm going to tackle another tough issue, and that's the word covenant. Covenant. Uh, how many of you know we have a covenant keeping God? And how many of you know we are not that good in keeping our covenants? It sets us apart quickly, doesn't it? I give you a Hebrew word and a Greek word that is normally translated in the Old Testament, obviously Hebrew, in the New Testament, the Greek, uh, covenant. But, how do you say that? That Hebrew word there. Let me see how good you are. Okay, I knew it. That's English. Actually, in Hebrew, it's perit. Perit. Okay? And then in the Greek, it's diatheke. Diatheke. That would be the Greek. Not that you will fail and understand the covenant if you can't pronounce that right, but it's kind of fun. How many of you have fun to learn at least a few Hebrew words or a few Greek words? And when you go out among your friends and you can say, oh, you're talking about perit. And they go, what? So don't you know that? 
Uh, makes you just about three notches above everybody else, correct? But that's not why I'm telling it to you. I'm giving you these words for a simple purpose. You can go home, and you can go on your internet. That's the only time I allow you to go on the internet. No, and you can go to a place like blueletterbible.org, and you can put up that Hebrew word, and do a little research what that Hebrew word is, perit, how it's being used and where it's being found. By the way, the, the software is free, the one I mentioned to you. You have access, free of charge. Some phenomenal stuff on there when you think it's for free. I don't use it much. I use the loggers, not because I make an advertising, but it's it's much deeper study, and you pay a lot more for it. But uh, that's my job. So I'm giving you these words for the simple purpose for you to do a little homework. Okay? So the meaning, the general meaning of, that, of these two words is entering a formal relational partnership to accomplish a goal. Remember? And entering a formal, that's a formality there, but it doesn't stay there. It is a relational partnership. And it is done to accomplish something. You never have a covenantal God who has not a very specific goal while that covenant has been made. Most of you know two things. One of them is, oh, there's the old covenant. That's what? The Old Testament. And then you know there's a new covenant, and that is the New Testament. Okay. But the Bible is much richer than this. This is kind of the simple way of formulating everything. The word berit is over 200 times in the Old Testament. I think 230-some. And in the New Testament, the word diateke is only about 30 times mentioned. Okay, interesting. But in biblical times, a covenant was much more than just an agreement between two parties, like we maybe would understand it in the Western world. It was a partnership that was based upon a close relationship, not just a relationship, a close relationship between two parties and the and the covenant has to benefit both parties. We in the, in the Western world, we still know one thing. And that is when we do a wedding ceremony. That's when we normally use that word, a covenant between two individuals for a very specific goal. Correct? So that's, kind of the, that's about the only time when we use that word anymore in church, is when we do a wedding ceremony. Most of them who get married have not a clue what that means because soon they forget that actually that marriage was done for the, to benefit both parties. See that? Both parties. But that's on a different page. So let's go to our text. Let's go to Genesis chapter 6. We're building up to Genesis chapter 9 eventually because in chapter 9 is the word covenant, perit, the first time found in the book of Genesis. Some scholars would like to say, well, maybe God made a berit in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve blew it. But the thing is, it could be that you could look at it like God made a commitment, but how many of you know Adam and Eve didn't make a commitment at all? So, and since berit means that two parties have to come together and agree for a common goal, I think no matter how much we want to stretch it, it's probably not a berit. It's probably simply God pronouncing something which he is going to do. So, that's just on a side note, but that's how picky I am when it comes to these things. So, in Genesis chapter 6, we all know what's going on there. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, that means Elohim there in your Hebrew, saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So this is kind of the, the setting of the condition of the world when God is eventually entering into a buried relationship with Noah and his family. 
We all know the stories. I'm not going to take the time to give you all the details here, uh, why this all happened, because that's going to be in a different teaching series I will do with you. So if you want to know all the details, what's going on there, you need to come back. It's that simple. How about that? So, so in, if you look at the first seven verses, we find the reason why God's judgment fell upon the earth. We normally teach the children in Sunday school, you know, there was a little flood, there was a little boat built, Noah went into the, uh, into the ark, and then God shut the door, and then, oh, first the animals came too, and then they, they were floating over the water, and then eventually he let the, the dove go, and eventually Noah came out, and God started all over again. That's kind of the, the summary of the story. There's a lot more going on here. For beginners... The whole thing why Genesis 6 happened is because the spiritual realm wanted to have their own children. And God separated the spiritual realm from the physical realm. There is no other creature like a human being, an image bearer. While in the spiritual realm God created spiritual beings, they were not made for the purpose to populate the earth. They had other assignments. But they obviously decided otherwise. If you don't get this, you don't even get chapter 2 in Genesis. So that's all linked together. And obviously it became so corrupt that God said, I need to step in and make a correction. A big one for that matter. It was so corrupt that the whole world was corrupted except one man and his family. How many of you have to say that's very bad? That is very bad. So when you and I live in the 21st century, we look around and we say, this whole world is corrupted. What in the world is going on? Well, we're not there yet, because when we are going to be totally corrupted on this planet, and only those who are faithful, trusting Jesus, are not going to be corrupted, that's when God steps in again. That's what Jesus meant, as in the days of Noah. So it shall be at the day before the Lord Jesus comes back. Totally, total corruption. So we haven't seen much yet. It's going to get, for some prophets would say, much better. Just wait. I would say the Bible tells me otherwise. You know, if it would go only better and better all the time, we would belong until, uh, until Jesus comes back. Or we would delay the return of Jesus. But Jesus' return is not delayed by, the, by corruption. It is delayed by the church not preaching the gospel. That's biblical theology. We don't have the time this morning to look at that, but doesn't that make you go, what am I contributing? We have to be God's ambassadors. Look how Noah did it. The Bible says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. How come Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord? He did not participate in the wickedness. That's all. And by not giving in to the pressure of the society he was living in, he was standing out, what we would say, like a sore thumb. He was a different person. And that's a big challenge today for the church, by the way. It has always been the challenge for the church. When we're going to be blending into the society, we are not finding favors in the eyes of the Lord. You cannot just blend into society. The society where you are moving and having your being needs to know that you and I are different. But I don't want to be different. Then I don't have many friends. Who cares about how many friends you got? you got to be different. And people need to know that you're different. And let me say, different, not weird, okay? You don't need to be stupid and weird out there. You need to be different the way you do business on this planet. The way you talk, the way you walk, what you do. You and I need to be different. And that difference finds favors with God. So that's why you find in verses 8 to 18, if you quickly would look to it with me, you see, 
Now, the only thing Noah did to show that he found favors with God is when God says, I want you to build a ship. A ship, what's that? They called it an ark. But it was a ship. Noah never saw one. Okay? So God says, okay, make yourselves an ark. I'm in verse 14. Of gopher wood. He gives them all the instructions. He tells them the rooms they have to be in, the size of the ship he has to build. And then God says, and I will establish, here we go, my covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So here God uses that word perit. I will establish my covenant with you. There is nothing mentioned what that covenant entails. He just said, I will make my covenant with you. He doesn't say, hey, Noah, you know what? I love you and uh, you, are, you have found favors in my sight. Would you be agreeing with me that we should go into a covenant relationship? Why? He already had a relationship with God. Noah already had a relationship with God. How did he build that relationship? Separating from the influences of a wicked society. That's what he did. And that's what God said, that's sufficient for me. So the Bible says in verse 22, Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. That's it. We learn in the New Testament that Noah preached for 120 years in a wicked society. For 120 years, Noah preached. And what do you think he preached? They didn't know that word repent yet. I tell you what Noah preached. The God of heaven who created all things is about to make an end of this wickedness. He's going to come and judge. He showed me that he's going to judge this wickedness on this earth. That's all he had to preach for 120 years. He didn't have a software to make a sermon every Sunday. That's all he preached wherever he went. People came, he just said, God is going to judge this world. And they all said, I already heard it. How many of you know if you hear things too often and you don't act on it, you can't hear it any longer, nor do you believe it any longer? 120 years is a long time. I want you in your mind to imagine being in that time and seeing these guys hammering away on something you have no clue what they're building. And whenever they came and laughed about him, he said, God is about to judge. I don't know when, but God is about to judge this wickedness where you are engaging in. That's all. And no one knew because God said, I will establish a covenant with you. I want to quickly put a few important things out the way you should engage when you open the Bible. Because I learned over the years that a lot of Christians not necessarily by their own default, but many times because they have not been taught. They just don't know how to read the Bible. Listen, if the Bible is the most exciting book on the planet, wouldn't you read it? I can tell you, I read a lot of books. You can read a lot of novels. You can go to Hollywood and, enter, and entertain you, all this kind of stuff. There is nothing more exciting than opening the book, the book where your eyes are being opened to a realm which you cannot see but is real. Then the eyes are being opened to what's going on around you, things you actually can see. And you never know where God is going with that. There's always a plot somewhere. And you just want to find out what's going on here. So I'll give you a few points what's going on in Genesis chapter 6. Let's put them all up, would you? Let's see. So here are a few questions. Okay, who initiated the covenant? God. Okay. Next question. Why did God pick Noah as a covenant partner? 
You invited you find favors, I just told you about it. Check in your memory. Okay. He separated from the wickedness the society surrounded him with. Next question. What did Noah do after the promise of God? I make a covenant. What did he do? Okay, I am saved. I know he made a covenant with me. I'm done. Let's go and do my own thing like so many Christians do. Okay, I'm saved. Now I can do whatever I want to do and everything is covered under grace. Is that what Noah did? What did he do? He obeyed God. He did what God told him to do. Okay? So who made sure Noah was safe? How did he do it? He shut that door. Noah goes in the ark. The animals are in the ark. And when you read in chapter 7, it was God himself who came and shut the door. Why? God knows Noah very well. Noah is a compassionate, merciful person. And once the judgment begins, there will be so many people hammering on that door, wanting to get in. Let us in, let us in, let us in. No such thing. God shut that door, and Noah could not open it. Another question you should ask yourselves, what was Noah's response to God? You might have made it all the way to chapter 8, but you can quickly look at it. 8 verse 20. This is after Noah comes out. The flood is over. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, just as God said, and he offered a burnt offering on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, is that a saying or what? Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. So what was Noah's response to God? That God saved him to that flood. He built an altar. He became a worshiper. Remember, there were no Ten Commandments. Why did God uh, let Noah build an altar and do animal sacrifice? In what kind of culture did Noah grow up in? What did the people around him in Near Eastern Mesopotamian culture do when they worshipped their gods? Sacrifices. That was the culture. And Noah said, I'm done with these kind of things. I'm going to give an, build an altar and give an offering to my God who got me through it. He is the real God. So here, you got that question answered. And what was God's response to Noah? We just read it. He made a promise. This is not a covenant here. He made a promise that he will never again flood the earth. That's God's response. Okay? So, was Noah fully convinced? Let's go to chapter 9, verses 8 to 17, and read it in the Bible. And God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, here is the second time, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Read in your Bible, it's not plural, offspring, singular. Singular. That goes back to the promise God made in the garden to the woman, your offspring. There was nobody on this earth living any longer except Noah and his family. And God speaks to Noah and to his sons. He said, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish, this is the third time, my perith with you, that again, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, or never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said this, 
This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Why did God make a sign for Noah? A reminder? Uh, ask the last question I have up there. Did God know that Noah was not 100% convinced? Let me ask you a question. Don't be too religious. Just get down to earth. When things are not happening the way you think they should happen, and you pray and nothing happens, but you open the book and the book makes the promises, but you don't believe it, you're not convinced, and then goes something like this, God, would you give me please a sign? <laughs> Ever done that? So we all little know us, aren't we? In other words, God knows human beings. He knows that they have a tough time to trust him on these promises. He said, Noah, I don't leave you hanging. I give you a sign. And that sign is everlasting. Whenever you see rain coming, the sun is shining, you're going to see the sign. Everybody will see the sign. And that sign reminds you and your offsprings of what I have done and will do. It kind of nullifies the question mark. Really? Is God going to do it? Is God going to do it? So the answer would be, Noah is just a man like you and me, but he has some insecurities. So we're not done with that yet. So God said, I will establish my covenant with you. Everything in this text would indicate that Noah and any other generation following him will somehow be influenced by what's going on now. Because the next chapter in the Bible reveals that Noah's family was not interested in God's covenant promises. You say, what did you just say? I said, the next chapter will tell us that Noah's family was not interested in the promise and the covenant God said he will establish with Noah and his offspring. How do we know? In chapter 10, you read, the nations, the descendants of Noah, doesn't matter how many generations it took, not many. And they said, you know what? We heard of things people had access to before the flood, and we want these information and these gods who were roaming this earth back down with us. And so we're going to build a tower. So all biblical scholars would agree with that. Maybe all is a big, but most of them would agree with that the Tower of Babel was a cigarette which was a part of a temple complex. And if you don't know, in ancient Near Eastern, as well as during the time Jesus was here, a temple was built for one purpose only. To call down the deity God to be among those who built the temple. It's not a far-fetched idea. You want Jesus to be with you? You have to accept him so you can be a temple of the living God and he lives in you. It's not a far-fetched idea. So when they built a cigarette, those descendants of Noah wanted to get those Elohims who played havoc in chapter 6 to come back down and lead them. That's a rejection of God Almighty. What did these Elohims had, which the people thought they need, but God was not willing to give them? Knowledge, knowledge. The word forbidden is not the right word, by the way. We always say forbidden word because we have some translations. Actually, we're going to look at that a little later. There's a much, much deeper Hebrew word meaning behind good and evil. Good stays good, but evil has a different meaning. But we're going to tackle that at another time. What is here important is even in the Christian circles, and I want to bring it into the 21st century for you and me, 
God is a covenant-keeping God, and we are the temple of the living God, and yet we constantly seek information from other sources than God. Have we changed a lot? We constantly dabbling in stuff that is demonically inspired. But I don't want to let it go. It's on our society. Everybody does it. Remember, Noah refused to do what the society around him did. If you and I want to find favors with God, don't dabble in spiritual stuff that has nothing to do with Jesus Christ and his word. That's how the favors stay. That doesn't mean that everything goes well, but how many of you know, even things don't go well, I still want to be in favors with God. And that's the key right there. So the next chapter reminds us in chapter 10 and then 11 when they build the tower. They wanted to make a covenant with other Elohims. The covenant with God was not good enough for them because they believed the source of future blessing is not in a covenant with Yahweh, but with spiritual powers that promises to elevate man's pride. Let me say it again. They believed that the covenant promises God gave Noah and his descendants are not the full blessings, kind of God holds off on some things, and they wanted to go into a covenant relationship with other Elohims that will promise to elevate man. Boy, nothing has changed. Sure they did. And what did God do? He couldn't flood them again. He made a promise. So he distributed them because they all had one language. They came out of one family. And eventually God disinherits all the nations. That's why we have the nation, the table of nations in chapter 12, uh, 11 and 10. That's why he got the whole list. He disinherits them. And this is why the book of Acts is so powerful when it comes to the day of Pentecost. He distributes them and gives them all different languages. What does God do when the Holy Spirit comes back? And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ will inherit all nations. Duh! If Jesus inherits all the nations, at one point all the nations were disinherited. You can't have it both ways. And what does God do all of a sudden? He has these 120 disciples who are going to be able to preach the gospel to all the languages represented there. In the book of Acts, it has nothing to do with gibbity-goop, gobbity-goop, whatever you want to call it. It has something to do with preaching the languages these people understood that God just has undone all the curse when he disinherited all the nations, and eventually he will get all the nations back. He'll eliminate a lot of stuff, fill it up. Chuck Swindoll, in his commentary on Genesis 11, 1 to 9, he's writing this, I, I like it, I quote him. He says, one of the greatest enemies of the Christian life is the religious life. You can stop right there. <laughs> now that's a mouthful. Did you just get that? He goes on to say, religion is the broad way that most people take, thinking that somehow they can do something to please God. Christianity is the narrow way that helps us understand what God has done for us. Remember the covenant? He goes on to say, religion is what I do for God. Christianity is what God has already done for me. Religion is an effort. Christianity is a gift. You should jump for joy. Well said. But he goes on to say and analyzes, and he said, the reason religion is so appealing to us is that we like feeling as if we are giving God a boost. Well said. We enjoy talking about all we are doing for God rather than emphasizing what he has done for us. Isn't that the 21st century? It makes us feel important. At first, religion might sound like it's focused on God, but in the end, it's all about us, our achievements, our glory, and our pride. End of quote. 
that drives a big nail right into our coffin and shuts that thing. This is exactly what we hear today all over the place. Look what I'm doing. Look what I do for God. Look what I do. And you better join me in doing it. It is pride and it will destroy your relationship with Jesus. Oh, it's still religious, but it will do us no good. What about if we can go out and say, you know, yesterday I ran into a person wherever and I happen to be able to share what God is doing in my life. And all of a sudden the person stood before me and started crying. I didn't know what's going on. And you can tell how it really happened. You don't have to stretch it, nothing. Just tell the way it is. In other words, it's not you who gets the glory. It's God who gets the glory. And I think that we need to go back to this because our churches are filled with people who have one goal in mind. I want to do things for God. And then they put it on Facebook, what they've done. Who do you think gets the glory? That's what Chuck Swindle is after. He said, it has never changed. That's Genesis chapter 11. Right there. No wonder people do not speak a very clear language. They say one thing, I serve God, but doing it for their own purpose. That's con confusing language. We go right back to Babel, don't we? But God does not stop in Genesis 11. God demolishes that religious attitude in Genesis chapter 12. Isn't that powerful? All packed in the first 12 chapters. He literally demolishes them. And he simply calls out the guy who has done absolutely nothing. He's an idol worshiper. The New Testament tells us, Stephen preaching, he said, our father Abraham was worshiping false gods in Mesopotamia. And then God calls him and said, Abraham, hey, follow me. I bring you to a land. Let's get out of here. I bring you to a land which I show you. He didn't say, here's a Google map. Abraham, this is where you're going to go, along the Euphrates River. And I'm going to stop you right on there. Abraham had no clue where he's going. Just like you and me. How many of you know we have no clue where we're going? <laughs> we just have to trust God. We have to trust God. We have no idea what tomorrow brings. So Abraham goes. That's what God tells him. So now, Abraham finally arrives down there. Now, I'm going to summarize the story for you because otherwise we're going to be three hours here. So Abraham goes down. He settles down there. And he, he gets rich, he gets livestock, everything goes well. It's a well-watered garden, correct? The promised land. So Abraham likes it there. But there are other people already living there. And Abraham's the, uh, servants have fights with other ruler's servants, primarily over water wells. Who dug, who didn't dig. And so Lot, his nephew, who goes with Abraham, had enough of that, and he said to Abraham, you know, Abraham, look, we got all these things, we don't have enough water, so I'm going to go down to Sodom in that valley that's fertile, and I go down there. And Abraham said, yeah, fine, you pick and choose whatever you want, I stay here. So nephew Lot goes. But as he's down there, you know, in those, we say always kings, but they were kind of cities, city kings, you know. It's like our city council believes they're kings, you know, it would be something like this, you know. We know that they're not, but they think they are. So that was, the, they just called them kings. And they had the little army, and they, they raided one another when they thought they're strong, and they took the other ones and stole everything and called them, okay, it's mine. So sure enough, that happened. As, as a lot was down in the Sodom and Gomorrah area, five kings decided, we're going to go and raid these guys. Somehow they went, uh, circumvent Abraham's, area and went straight down there and Lot got taken hostage, his family, all the stuff disappears. Somebody comes and tells Abraham that his, Lot, his nephew Lot and his family got hijacked and they are now prisoners of war. Abraham had 318 warriors trained 
You don't train them when the, when the battle begins. You had them trained before, correct? The Bible tells us they were well-trained and equipped soldiers. So Abraham says, okay, my responsibility is to go and get my family back. Lot is still my family, so I need to go get him. And he starts a covert guerrilla operation. That's what he does. You need to read it for what it is. He rides on these camels and mules as fast as they can all night. Eventually they get to the camp. There's certain things the Bible reveals to us how they found it. And then eventually Abraham gets it all back. Okay? And he goes home. Lot is back. The people are back. The kings which he rescued in the process, they're all happy. And Abraham is at home. And this is what's going on in Abraham's life. I just transacted to that guerrilla COVID operation, those five kings. These guys are still alive. How would you feel about it? Uh, you are on the most wanted list, if you like it or not. In that kind of mindset, this is why these stories are in the Bible. Let's go to Genesis chapter 15. In that kind of mindset, God shows up to Abraham. And the writer is telling us a beautiful story. He says, after these things, after that raid and all that kind of stuff, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. What do you mean? Abraham was shaking in his boots. He did not know what these people were going to do. He just raided all these people from. And here God shows up and said, Abraham, fear not. I am your shield. Abraham knew he needed a shield. That's another word. I am your protection, Abraham. They're not going to come after you. Don't worry about it. But then he says something else. I am your reward. And the reward will be very great. The shield is one thing. That's a shield from the enemy. Great. But when God goes on to say he's also Abraham's great reward... Abraham picked it up right there. Look what Abraham said. Oh, Lord God, what do you only give me if I continue childless on the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? The first time God showed up to Abraham and told him that he will have an heir, 20 years ago. 20 years ago. God shows up and says, Abraham, I'm your shield. Don't worry about it, your enemies. I will take care of them. And by the way, the reward, you know, the reward I told you will be very great. And Abraham goes, sure. Nothing has happened. Absolutely nothing. Abraham immediately goes into that discussion. Behold, you have given me no offspring. And the member of my household will be my heir. I have to give it to somebody. And the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. In English, no. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Here in Iowa, we don't have a big problem to see what Abraham saw. If you are not in a city and you're way out there and you can look up in a clear sky and you see stars and you start counting and you stop within three hours because you go nowhere. That's what God says to Abraham. Start, start counting. You see all these stars? You cannot count them. Your offspring, you cannot count. That's what he says to Abraham. He brings him outside. And here comes the clincher of the whole deal. I am the Lord who brought you out from all of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Okay. So the first promise, there are two promises involved. The first promise, we just read, Abraham you're going to have all those children. And Abraham's response is what? He believed it. 
He trusted what God says. He believed. The word belief could be easily translated putting the trust in what the person just said. And listen, and he counted it to him as righteousness. The word righteousness in the biblical terminology means right relationship or right standing with God. Has nothing to do with moral purity. Righteousness means I am in right standing with God. Let me bring you to a point where you once were. When you were a real solid pagan, and we all have been, you say, well, I grew up in a Christian home. You were still a solid pagan. You know what the word pagan means? Outside of the Jewish lineage. That's what that was called. Anyone who was not Jew in the Jewish literature was a pagan. How many of you have been born Jewish? Okay, none of you, good. Okay, so well. So you were a pagan, a solid pagan. You acted like a pagan. And then one day, you heard the good news, and you trusted what God says is true. Didn't that go? That's the way it went. And it was counted unto you as righteousness. You are in right standing with God. That's how the transfer happened. You haven't done anything except trusting him. That's it. My question to you is, what happened since? There's a lot of stuff that's going on in our life where God is shaping and molding us, and all of a sudden we don't trust God anymore. We more trust what we can do for God. Since when did we come up with that idea? It's definitely not pleasing to God because you tell God, sometimes I trust you, but other times I don't think I can trust you. But God says, Abraham believed God and he was in the right relationship with God. That's it. That's all it took. The second promise is differently. Abraham, you are a foreigner in this land. I brought you here from Ur. That's why God says, I brought you from another country and I brought you here. You're a foreigner in this land, but I'm giving it, this land to you. And how was Abraham's response in verse 8? A little bit different. Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He doesn't say, I don't trust you. He said, can you show me somehow, give me something, like Noah, he got a sign. Abraham said, give me something so I know for sure that my people will possess it. And then God gives him this incredible answer. Abraham, go get me a heifer. What? A heifer? I want to know how you prove to me that I'm going to get the land. Go get me a heifer. Oh, by the way, when you're out in the field, get a goat too. A ram also. And you go, birds of prey, all that kind of stuff. What's that? And then the sun goes down. Abraham had to cut him in half. Slaughter him. Right there. He was a butcher for that day. They started out good with promises, and then he turned into a butcher. And so here he is in the, in the middle of the land, killing all these animals. And the sun was going down, and the deep sleep fell on Abraham. Have you ever wondered why a deep sleep fell on Abraham? Well, the guy was tired. I would be tired too, cutting these animals in half. But the question is, what does a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, has to do with lamb possession? What do you think? The Hebrew writer doesn't tell us. Why? Because he assumes that those who read understand the culture. Everybody in those days knew that if you make a covenant between two parties and you want to make sure that that thing is going to come true, you get animals, you cut them in half, you push them and kill them, cut them in half, make a little room between, and the two people who get into a covenant relationship walk down the aisle between those dead animals. 
And they're looking at each other. And they say, if one of us breaks that covenant, your faith is the same faith these animals just experienced. It's a visual reminder of what a covenant really means. So Abraham lives in that culture. God tells him, we're going to make a covenant. But something happened. Abraham falls asleep. He can't do that. He's supposed to walk with God down that aisle. And he snores. And he's God all alone with the dead animals. But then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Okay, so God says, the darkness that fell upon you, I interpret it for you. This is what your people are going to experience, but don't worry about it. I'm going to make a covenant with you. The berith I make with you, I will keep. The Bible says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. What is that? That's God's glory. That's God's glory. We find that again when the exodus happened. That huge pillar of fire is the same wording. It's like a flaming torch. God's glory is there. And that God's glory passed between those pieces. On that day, the Lord made a berit with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. What is God saying? Abraham says, Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And God says, let's make a covenant, Abraham. And if one of us violates that covenant, our fate shall be the same fate of these animals. Abraham falls asleep. Why? God protects Abraham. Listen to me. God is protecting Abraham. If Abraham would stay awake, Abraham would have to walk the aisle with God. God knows that Abraham and his descendants will not keep the covenant. And if they will not keep the covenant, their fate is the same fate these animals experienced. For that not to happen, God puts Abraham to a deep sleep and he can't walk the aisle with God. There's only one who walks the aisle. God. Do you get the picture? Do you understand what's going on here? We read that and we think, well, big deal. This is a covenant-keeping God who walks the aisle all by himself. Because he knows who we are. We are not covenant-keeping people. We will mess it up. And God says, I don't want you to have the faith of these animals. I walk it all by myself. Abraham, that's how you will know that what I say is true. I'm not taking you with me. I will do that all by myself. What is going on here speaks volume who our God is. And who Abraham's descendants are. God certainly knows. But Abraham doesn't know. This is what the Bible means when it says, our God knows past, present, and future. And he still makes a covenant with us. He's not concerned. Because we never walked the aisle with him. He knows. What is God doing here when he protects Abraham? Put it up for you. At the same time, God is not going to let their failure, you and my failure, and the failure of our ancestors and the failure of our future generation determine whether or not his purpose to save the world will be fulfilled. He said, that's my covenant with the world and I don't walk it with people because it will be fulfilled. It doesn't matter what you and I do. 
God goes alone to all this bloody covenant ceremony. He knows exactly what he's doing. It is God, listen, it is God who carries the consequences of us breaking the covenant with him. God still walked the aisle. There's nobody with him. Fast forward. Jesus, the Last Supper. Think about it. Jesus knows all this. He's God. He was there when that covenant was made. He always refers to Abraham in the big discussions with the religious leaders, remember? He goes back to that covenant relationship. Jesus sits with his disciples. All are Jewish. They all know the Jewish history. And he says, tonight, all of you will forsake me. Did they believe it? No. All of you will forsake me. I will go through the aisle all by myself. Let's have the Last Supper. This cup is my blood, which I will shed for you. This body will be broken like I break this bread. That's my faith, because I entered into a covenant relationship and you broke it. But I will be broken for you. I'll take the whole consequence. He goes to the cross. He's got beaten to a pulp before, then nailed, and he looks like those animals, crucified, died for you and me. And he says, this blood is for the new covenant. The new covenant. He doesn't say the old was worthless. He said, I'm here to fulfill it. I have not come to do away with anything. I came to fulfill it. Jesus walked for you and me the aisle. So we have a new covenant with him, with God. Or we do not have to pay the consequences for failing in our covenant relationship. That's the real purpose of the Last Supper of Jesus Christ. That's the real purpose of God being a covenant-keeping God. It's not about what you and I do. It's what he has already done. Take that. And remember, a covenant is not a word. A covenant is God committed to you and me. So we can spend eternity with him. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, so much you have written down for us and so little we understand. But we want to thank you this morning for the light you have given us. May your Holy Spirit bring that to our remembrance quite often, especially when we stand before you or sit before you when we take communion with one another. And when we say, think about what has gotten between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, remind them. Despite the fact that we are covenant people, we're not always keeping it. But you are a covenant-keeping God. We can be in right standing with you. May that pranks the point home, Lord that we don't want to work for you, we want to work alongside you. We want to sit at your feet. You told Martha Merge in that story. The better things we have chosen is when we sit at your feet and listen to you. May that be a message that we can just sit at your feet and ponder what an incredible God you are. Help us every day to open your word 
to studying it, to trust you, like Abraham trusted you. When he wanted to know how you're going to bring them back into the land, you walked that covenant all by yourself, saying to Abraham, Abraham, it's not up to you. You can't do it. Your descendants can't do it. I will do it for you. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and fulfilling all this so we can have a right relationship with you. We thank you for making that plain, simple, and to bring us close into that relationship with you every day. It's not about religion. It's about that deep relationship with you. And we thank you and praise you for it. And all God's people can say to that, Amen. Amen.